Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Salt Ovation Podcast. I'm Alex Corshin. Before I introduce the topic and our guest today, I think I'd like to share a really quick story as to uh, how we got to the topic. I, uh, I had a client call some time ago where they were sharing a story with me where they had a dispute with a subcontractor. They were in a contracting business, and the subcontractor escalated the dispute directly to the state, and the response from the state was, you know, you should do X because we're the state and we know best and we say so. That really stuck with me for a while. And, and I've been I've been percolating on, on, on this perspective that I think we as practitioners come across uh, from time to time. And it uh, it led me to to have this podcast. Uh, and the topic is the adversarial nature relationship between practitioners, taxpayers, the Departments of Revenue and legislators, and how that has changed over time, if if at all. And with that, I'd like to introduce our guest. Uh, our guest today is, is Bruce Nelson. He is uh, he has a front has had a front row seat into these adversarial relationships for, I think, approximately forty years. Bruce um, has been practicing um, and is now an instructor for the AICPA and an editor at the Journal of State Taxation, where he gets to dig into state controversy and highlight hot topics uh, for a national audience. Welcome, Bruce, to the show. Thanks, Alex. And also, we have uh, Judy Vorndren uh, from Salt Ovation. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Alex. Let's uh, let's dive right into it. I, I think, Bruce, you, when you, you and I spoke a little bit about this topic beforehand, and you mentioned that there is actually a larger picture here that ropes in political issues, economic issues, uh, technolo- technological changes. Can you speak a little bit about how all that comes together uh, to create the environment leading up to the Quill decision in uh, 1992? Sure. Let me start by saying I do think that the relationship between taxpayers and tax administrators and legislators and so on and so forth um, has become more divisive and the audits have become more difficult and the states have certainly become more aggressive. And I think there are several larger issues that we sometimes forget about that are are sort of creating that situation. I mean, not the least of which is, I mean, you could actually go back to say 1980 when Ronald Reagan won the election. Since that time, uh, starting with Ronald Reagan and going forward, Uh, the federal government has been pushing more and more costs off of themselves onto the states. So the states need more money. At the same time, we're moving from, you know, we all talked about this in all kinds of venues, from a manufacturing environment to more of a service communication information environment in terms of our economy. And so the traditional tax base is starting to shrink some since the 1950s and 60s, certainly. I think one other thing that's happened is there's institutional knowledge that's been disappearing. I mean, all the baby boomers like myself, and and I want to thank you, Alex, for reminding everybody how old I am uh, <laughs> since I've been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> young at heart, young at heart, and young in disposition in many oh. ways. Oh, Judy, you're so, 
you know, Judy, you're so kind to old old guys, you know? Okay, so your parents raised you right. So, so one of the things, though, that I think has happened is that when a lot of the baby boomers who started working in the 1960s for revenue departments all started retiring in the, if not the late 80s, the 90s. And you had a lot of institutional knowledge that went out the door, a lot of experience that went out the door. And you have a lot of younger auditors now, uh, newer folks in there who don't have that institutional knowledge. Because, for example, when when I first started doing work with state and local, uh, many times we could resolve so many issues on the audit. You would sit down with an auditor. The auditor had been around the block a few times. He or she was experienced, had some knowledge. You know, and a lot of times you could you could settle a lot of smaller issues, not not substantive issues, but smaller issues in the audit. And then if you had to file a protest and go forward, you only took the larger issues with you. That has largely disappeared in my experience. In my experience, the auditors come out, they put together their work papers, you sit down and go over the work papers with them. They say, yeah, yeah, okay, uh-huh, I understand. They don't change anything and they turn it in and you have to file protests to get rid of issues that ordinarily you could have resolved. And I think what's driving that is the states are under, uh, well, especially now with the pandemic, I think in the next two years, all the states are gonna be focused on is trying to balance their budgets. So they're under enormous uh, fiscal pressure. Uh, for all of these reasons, their pensions now are large because all of us baby boomers have retired. Well, except for me, I mean, it gives me pause when I look in the mirror in the morning, you know, because I called Florida just the other day to talk to somebody down there about an issue. And the person said, oh, no, he passed away two years ago, Bruce. Oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but no, I think... Uh, one of the things that's happening is when I was at the Department of Revenue, for example, in the 80s, we got a lot of training. And Ted Middle, who was the chief auditor at that time, he wanted all of the revenue agents to get their certifications and become CPAs or whatever. You got time off to go to um, conferences and, and training. You know, now my understanding is if you want to go to a tax conference or training, that's fine. It's on your dime and it's on your time. You have to take vacation time for to do that. Well, if you're a revenue agent, are you going to really take your own vacation time and pay for your own uh, training at a conference? Go to a, any sort of IPT or cost conference? I don't. I don't think so. And so we've got newer auditors with less training, less experience, uh, many times through no fault of their own. And you've got states that are trying to get these auditors to do more audits in a shorter amount of time because fiscally they're being crunched by technological change, by economic change, by demographic changes, all those kinds of things, I think, led up to Quill and, and actually have continued since then. Uh, Judy, any thoughts? 
Well, I was just going to comment what I think is also the case is you've got people who are used to doing things by paper. I mean, when I got started and did sales tax returns, I filled out coupon books. <laughs> they did not fit in the copy machine. I had to actually open the lid, put the thing down, make a copy. I mean, then we transitioned to ACH, EFT filing. And so there's that transition in technology and wherewithal. And so you forget how hard things were. And so there's a there's a thought about it being easy. Where's the easy button? And then I think there's a lot of latitude being taken away from the audit level, where if you schedule it, it has to live on the work papers. It doesn't get taken away. Supervisors say, I don't get to, I'm not going to opine on it. I'm going to let it ride. And I noticed that actually in 2007, 2008 as well, when we had our downfall, uh, what was that, the recession. And there was a lot of inflexibility. And I thought, I can't. I can't believe we're going to have to sue to get some of these issues resolved. And I think, as you're stating, if, if it's a $50,000 tax issue, you're not going to sue. You can't make up the fees for the legal services to compensate for the tax output. So you're just going to settle. Plus, you're looking at three years to take a dispute forward. So it has to be material enough for your business to live with that unresolution for a period of time. So I think you, you, you find this like, push-pull with auditors that is very disadvantageous to a taxpayer and really, honestly, quite disheartening um, in terms of their understanding the business model. And then I don't know, like you were saying, you know, they wanted you to get your CPA. Several years ago when I was building up the tax practice at a, a regional firm in my state and local area, I wanted to hire state auditors and city auditors. And when I went to get their credentials, I found that many of them were not CPAs. So I thought, I can't bring them in. I'm an accounting firm. I need a CPA certification or they're never going to be able to advance. So you didn't always find that they had the right ed educational background to even work as a consultant. Mind you, they're at the state. So there was definitely a, um, a layer of education that was being skipped and thinking, okay, we'll just bring these people in and we'll train them on the job, which means they don't have financial um, background, which I think is problematic. You can't just train to an audit. You, know, you have to understand business as a whole. So given given these rising pension costs uh, that the states were in, in, experiencing, the, the changes in the economy shifting from a traditional industrial uh, manufacturing uh, type of economy to a more technological service-based uh, economy in the, in the late 80s and early 90s uh, and the political environment as well, uh, Quill really was... Uh, a pretty huge blow to to the states, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, that's right. Um, as a matter of fact, Quill was the first court case I ever downloaded online. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was actually at a training. I was actually at a training conference when the decision was handed down. Uh, I wasn't on AOL. I think it was Prodigy at that time. And I downloaded the case that night and uh, read it and was able to talk about it the next day at the conference. And not knowing that the monster I had, you know, I just uh, joined forces with that now, you know, cases handed down and a client expects you to be able to opine on it 15 minutes after it's been published. But, mm -hmm. but anyway, yeah, no, I think Quill was, Quill was a big setback for the states. It, it really was. Um, and, you know, from, from the moment Quill was decided, the states were trying to work their way around it, erode it, overcome it. Um, the Streamlined Sales Tax Initiative was started immediately after Quill. You know, that's the initiative where there's about 20 some states now where they 
the states got together and thought, well, wait a minute, if the U.S. Supreme Court says that, you know, complexity is an impediment to interstate commerce, well, we'll, we're going to simplify things. And once we get it all simplified, then we can go back to court and we can win in Quill because, you know, complications and 5,000, 10,000 sales tax filing jurisdictions is not a problem anymore because we've simplified not an impediment to interstate commerce. And at the same time, they started, you know, pushing on what is the definition of tangible personal property? How do you define physical presence? You know, to to the point where now we've got this ridiculous standard that came out just a few years ago with, I believe, Ohio and Massachusetts, that cookies, cookies on yes. your computer are physical presence. I mean, good, good right. grief, you know, give me a break. So, so they've been working, trying to erode and undermine Quill for years, and they've introduced legislation in fairness. They've introduced legislation almost every year in the U.S. Congress to that would give states the authority to require remote sellers to collect, and it never got anywhere. I mean, almost every year it just simply died in committee. So they're very frustrated at the same time all these other pressures are putting upon them. And, and I think, too, to some extent, Legislators are also, I mean, we're all part and parcel of this, but legislators many times simply don't understand. Um, and I think the Wayfair case was a good example of that, where, you know, one of the justices said something to the effect that, well, you know, now you've got software, so it's easy. And I'm yeah. like, really? Really? You think that? Okay, so that means that when TurboTax came out, uh, Income tax became easy. So, what does it take you? Let's say you got a, a parent corporation and three subs, and you're doing a consolidated return. What's it take you now? 15 minutes? No, <laughs> right? It doesn't. Software software is enormous help in processing and procedure and administration. It does nothing to address the complexity, underlying complexity that someone has to, is faced with when having to file you know, in thousands of sales tax jurisdictions. Yep. Right. Absolutely. So uh, interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the, the cookies, uh, but even even before cookies, we had, uh, you know, affiliate attributional principles that were developed, uh, click through Nexus, starting with New York in 2008. We had notice and reporting uh, out of Colorado starting in 2010. Um Yes, I'd like to point out, you know, that Colorado was on the cutting edge of two issues. One is, <laughs> you know, uh, we were on the cutting edge of, uh, you know, notice and reporting with re Nexus standards, and we were one of the first to legalize marijuana. So, you know, we want to be sure and get that on the record. Well, kudos, kudos, kudos to Colorado. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, good, good, good tax policy, uh, good tax law. Or, or you think that all of these are are really just you know more of more of the same, where it's just um, seeing how far you can push the envelope uh, to try to fill the coffers? No, I think that's exactly it. It's it, it's it's you know what's driving this is they need funds, okay? And so you know they're putting pressure on the auditors to be as aggressive as they can. They're putting pressures on the auditors to get as many audits done as they can and they're they're doing things that you know years ago i would have never seen i mean a, a recent example is the agilent oracle case in in colorado where the department of revenue 
actually went to court arguing that their own regulation was wrong. And, and you know, our response was, look, if you want to change the law, that's fine. There's a process for that. There's a procedure for that. You introduce legislation. In Colorado, we have this unique problem of, of TABOR, Taxpayer Bill of Rights, where if it increases tax revenue, everyone gets to vote on it. And, and so the Department of Revenue knows, okay, well, we're not going to be able to probably get this enacted or no one's going to vote for this in an election. I mean, the issue in, in Agilent and Oracle were holding companies and whether or not they should be included in a combined report. I mean, how does that go on a bumper sticker in an election? You know, you know, uh, you know, holding companies should be, you know, in combined reports. And what kind of bumper sticker is that? I mean, and so they know those things aren't going to get passed. And so they're taking positions. And, and also one other thing. You know, I was at the Department of Revenue back when the regulation was was first promulgated and I and we got training at the Department of Revenue that was completely opposite of what the department was arguing in Oracle and Agilent. And part of that is again institutional knowledge is gone. I mean, everyone at the department who was involved in that litigation has only been there like 5 or 6 years. So, you know, but you're right. I mean, the department's looking at this and saying, okay, we need more money. Well, can we argue this point? Uh, well, it's kind of a stretch, but let's try it. And well, and then also I think there's a there's a real pulse towards getting out of state voter money, right? So you right. can't vote on a policy issue if you're not a state taxpayer, right? So we want your money, not our money. <laughs> so I see it as like, we're, you know, you're, our citizens are buying your products and services. And therefore, we should be able to get tax that effort. So, and guess what? You don't get to vote on that. I mean, I think, you know, if you if you will even akin that to lodging taxes, if you think about lodging taxes, they are inordinately high compared to even a sales tax in many jurisdictions. And they're on a lot of things that you normally wouldn't consider to be a taxable lodging. And it is emboldened because it's passed to on a visitor not on a taxpayer who lives there. You don't go and stay in your own local hotels. So you have no idea what those costs are. And so you're thinking, all right, well, that's the cost of going to Atlanta. That's the cost of going to New York. It's those taxes. But those taxes were increased partially because you weren't paying for them as a local. So I just think that some of that policy is very interesting how governments try to expand their base outside of their own backyard oh. intentionally. Uh, politically palpable decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Not on my backyard. I don't know it. Well, so. Judy, you know, a good example of that is the move to market-based sourcing and single sales tax. <sighs> right. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. And, and, and I, you know, I, I'm going to pick on Coors and Anheuser-Busch because, you know, we all like beer. But, you know, let's say, let's say that Coors wants to build another brewery here in Colorado and hire 5,000 more people. Okay, think about the impact that's gonna have on the infrastructure here in Colorado. You got 5,000 more employees, you got you need more houses, you need more streets, you're gonna need more schools for their kids. You got all that additional impact on the infrastructure in Colorado. But Anheuser-Busch or, or Coors or any company, they could build that brewery and double their employees, and their taxes in Colorado would not go up a dime. 
because Colorado uses single sales factor. So essentially we're exporting the tax outside of the state to, as you say, Judy, people who do not vote here. I mean, if you took say a, a little company in Goodland, Kansas, let's say they manufacture backpacks and they sell 90% of them to call into Colorado. When we had three factor apportionment, payroll, property and sales, okay, their sales factor would be pretty much the only thing they would have in, Cal in, in Colorado, okay? But they had payroll and property, so you divide by three, so it's mitigated, okay? Right. But now, when Colorado goes to a single sales factor, all of a sudden, you know, that pulls in more tax revenue from that little manufacturer in Goodland, Kansas, into Colorado, where, as you say, Judy, they don't vote here, they don't live here, yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, Alex, you're exactly right. I mean, there's all these various things that are moving in the same direction of of trying to increase the tax base and become more aggressive while doing so. And, you know, I don't know that we even talked about what Quill meant, which was the substantial physical presence. That was the, the law of the land. And then the word substantial is what's been slowly but surely eroded to one day you know, in Michigan and California specifically one day, how could that possibly be substantial? So, you know, this pivot to Wayfair, even the economic threshold. I mean, I have a client that sells a $5 thing. If they sell 200 of them, which is not very much money in terms of a revenue is they have a duty to collect the tax in states with that threshold. So it's, you know, some of this doesn't really make sense in terms of materiality even from a one day perspective, in my mind, you know, you have a remote employee, you have Nexus in a state, that's crazy. Why? And now today with what, with, with COVID, of course, you're going to have remote employees. In fact, probably more so than we've ever seen before. So why should that be a detriment to you to hire the right person wherever they want to live and let them work remotely and create a Nexus for tax purposes? So there's a lot of things that I don't think make sense from a doing business perspective that impact taxpayers' duties across our land, even if they're not making any money from people in that state where that remote employee is. Yeah. Well, be, before we get to COVID, and, and I do want to touch on that, let's let's talk about Wayfair a little bit. And and I know that most of our listeners are probably very, very Wayfared out, but let's talk about it from another perspective. So it, it, it kind of sounds like leading up to Wayfair, we've had an upward trajectory of adversity. With Wayfair, as opposed to Quill, the states have scored a huge, huge victory. They've, I, I, it, it, in my mind, they, they could not have gotten a better result. So does that lead to a kinder, gentler state? Does that lead to eased tensions? Does that lead to, you know, taxpayers and, uh, and, and, and departments of revenue holding hands and skipping off into the sunset? Alex, you're so young. You're so young. <laughs> um, you know, someone once said, a comedian once said, every year I become more cynical and it's never enough. Um, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, you know, and particularly because of COVID, you know, I don't think it was going to happen even without COVID, but with COVID, I mean, think about this, the states, most states have a constitutional requirement to balance their budget. They have to bring in more money and they have been crippled by this COVID pandemic financially. 
And so we're going to see, you're going to see, well, here's something that we've seen in the last 10 years that we never saw earlier than that. And that is states passing laws that were make retroactive, not just to the beginning of the year. You know, we're all used to tax law being passed in December, or made retroactive to January. But we've seen litigation with states like Washington and Michigan, where they've enacted legislation and made it retroactive for, you know, eight to 10 years. I mean, you know, so I don't think that's going to change. I think it's going to get worse. We're going to see more retroactive legislation. I think we're going to see more states legalize marijuana just because they need the money. <laughs> well, they need everybody to chill out. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, you know, I always joke that, you know, Colorado has the worst sales tax and compliance of any state in the United States. And I always tell people that the reason we legalized marijuana here was the state legislature had a choice. They could either simplify our tax law or give us another drug to anesthetize us so that we don't feel the pain. Exactly. <laughs> and they opted for the latter, unfortunately. But, but no, Alex, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I think it's going to get e even worse. What uh, what else can they what else can they be looking for? Are you know again you know Wayfair has uh, was a tremendous victory. What 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 loose change are we picking off the ground? Public law eighty six two seventy two. Mm -hmm. okay. It's going to be I think the public law eighty six two seventy two. I know most of our listeners know this, but basically it's a safe harbor provision where if the only thing you're doing in a state is solicitation of sales of tangible personal property and those sales orders are being accepted and filled from outside the state, then you don't have an income tax filing obligation. So if I'm selling widgets in Kansas, I, I could have 100 employees working for me in Kansas, but if all they're doing is running around soliciting sales from Dorothy and Toto, and sending those sales orders back here to me in Colorado, and I'm filling those orders from outside of Kansas. I have a sales tax filing obligation. I've got unemployment taxes I got to do. I got wage withholding for all my employees, but I don't have to file a corporate income tax return. That public law 86272 was enacted in 1959, and we've already seen states adopt economic thresholds for income tax filing, but right. You know, they'll they'll say if you press them, at least most of the states will say, well, yeah, 86272 still trumps that if you're selling tangible personal property. But if you're selling services or intangibles, then you're not protected. And I think the next thing they're going to try and knock off is the protection under 86272 so that essentially you'll have an economic threshold for sales tax, you'll have an economic threshold for income tax, and you're going to have to pretty much file anywhere if you're of significant size. Right. And the, there is the new thing coming out with the update to public law 6272, which speaks about cookies and chat boxes and all the interactivity one has with a website. So why why would you not have that for your service, right? Of course you're going to have it. So you're, you're, you're going to inhibit business from working with their customers remotely if they're going to avoid an income tax consequence. So I see a serious erosion 
where you're going to have an alignment of your sales tax filings and your income tax filings, regardless of what you sell where. So I think that's an interest. And, and certainly economy has changed in how we're doing business and more now more than anything. I mean, I feel like the joke is my highlight of every day is when somebody comes by and drops off a package in my front yard, even if it's a mop head, I'm excited. So, um, you know, we're certainly doing more remote transactions than we've ever had before, but there are questions I've had to have. And I've interacted with the vendor on the website chat box. There you go. That's a public law 6272 erosion is what we're seeing. I, you know, and I think at some point you have to ask yourself, um, you know, are we going back to, you know, when the U.S. Constitution was promulgated, you know, ratified Constitutional Convention 1787, you know, one of the things they were trying to do, the reason we have a Commerce Clause is because if you were trying to ship goods from New York, to Philadelphia and you were trying to go through New Jersey to do it, there were so many taxes and fees and payments you had to make to cross New Jersey that you could never make enough money to get a return by the time you got to Philadelphia. So usually you ship the goods. So, I mean, the question is at some point we've got to ask ourselves, you know, have the states hit the point where these are no longer, their tax policies are no longer matters of local concern? But that at some point, the federal government is going to have to step in and say, wait a minute, we need some uniformity here. We need some simplification here. We'll see if it gets that bad. I don't know. We can't seem to do it now with COVID, so I don't no, know what we're no, going to do with no, tax no, policy. No. <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess the short answer to your question, Alex, and, and, and I know you may think I'm saying this just because I'm getting old, but I think it's going to get worse. It's going to get uglier. And um, and I don't see any any solution to that. And in the meantime, I got to run out and chase some kids off my lawn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so then given the seeming uh, increase over the years, at least over the last 30 or so years since Quill of uh, of tensions between between the uh, uh, the stakeholders here, what what uh, what have you seen in your dealings with businesses and how you've advised businesses? What what are business owners? What should they be expecting? I mean, from my perspective, at least, I, I it it does appear that there are fewer and fewer taxpayer victories when I read case law these days. I think that's true. I mean, you know, a couple of things. I used to have this conversation at least once a week. Um, a client would come in and I would say, okay, you're filing in four states. You really should be filing in 13 states. Um, and they would say, okay, Bruce, um, we don't have the bandwidth to do that. We don't have the resources to do that. We don't have the sophistication to do that. I, I tell you what I'll do, Bruce, you know, just to cheer you up is I'm going to, I'm going to start filing in eight states. But those eight states are going to take care of maybe maybe the old 80-20 rule comes into play. It takes care of 80-90% of my exposure. I'm going to file there. These other states, if Arkansas wants their $2,100, bucks, they are going to have to come after me. And that's a business decision that they have to make. And more businesses are making that decision of, okay, where can we file to, to take the biggest bite out of our tax exposure because we simply cannot file, you know, in, in all the jurisdictions we should be filing. Now, as a CPA, I can't tell them you don't have a filing obligation, but as a business owner, they can come back and tell me, look, 
this this isn't from a cost benefit analysis. This doesn't make any sense to me, Bruce. I'm not going to file in Arkansas or whatever the state it is. So that's one conversation. And the second conversation I think I have many times is, as Judy mentioned earlier, you got a $30,000, $50,000 assessment. It's going to cost you $50,000 just to get to district court. So, and and even if you have a good argument, let's say you think you're 70, 80% going to win. I mean, are you going to spend $50,000 and maybe not? I mean, and so there are a lot of businesses that they're losing cases because they're not even bringing the cases forward. Okay. So I, I, I think it's, I think it's going to persist. Well, and I think the other thing that's interesting is I think as business owners talk to one another, right? Nobody says, oh, I got nailed on this audit and it was a really bad, nobody talks about it, right? So there's a lot of secrets and shame, honestly, for missteps or misperceptions. And I don't think that's a fair um, look at it, but I have clients who say to me, oh, I can't. I can't tell them I didn't do it right for the last couple of years. I'm just going to have to eat it. And I'm thinking, no, absolutely not. You can re-invoice them for the tax you didn't charge them. Rightfully so. It was their money. Or ask them to tell you if they did something with your invoices and paid the tax directly via audit or otherwise. But there is this shame and there's this lack of transparency because audits are settled and they are never put in the public forum. So unless you and I knew about it and talked to one another and shared stories, there's nothing to read about that audit result. So you really don't even know sometimes what the government is doing to do a deal with this guy or not with that one because audits have no precedential value. So an audit, I have a situation now where we took a case to court, we did lose, and the auditor's coming in and doing an opposite. Now, same jurisdiction. Oh, we thought it was this last time, and now we're doing this. I'm like, we have a court case that says it's this. Did you read it? So that's very <laughs> disheartening to have to actually straighten the auditor out and say, why are we going here when this was already addressed, asked, and answered by a court of law? Because we wanted assurance for exactly the reason we're dealing with right now, which is they're changing, they're changing their stripes and going for a different angle. So that's, I think there's just a lot, a lack of sharing. It's sort of secret, you know, and there's so many jurisdictions and there's so many different types of taxpayers that taxpayers don't really have the wherewithal, the information. And they, and frankly, it's the last thing they want to think about. They want to get their invoices out there. They want to get their product out there. They want to just help their customers and move on. <laughs> and then tax is just the ugly afterthought. And let me, let me add this one thing to Alex in all fairness, you know, it's it hasn't all been the states. I mean, taxpayers have become much more aggressive in their tax planning um, and things like that and more sophisticated. And, you know, I, I can point to all these cases that states bring up that I just think are ridiculous. But I can also point out, you know, positions that taxpayers take that I just think, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Right. Uh, so, you know, it's it you know, taxpayers and, uh, and attorneys and accountants, we, we have our share of blame here too that makes this situation worse. It sounds like the, uh, the next couple of years are going to be interesting, um, even, uh, even with the Wayfair uh, audit cycle starting to pick up. And now with the, with the COVID um, fiscal pressures mounting, it, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens uh, from an audit perspective and from a legislative perspective. Well, didn't you think the marketplace was kind of interesting? Because I thought, all right, we got Wayfair, we're good, right? But now we're acting the mar we're enacting marketplace laws. I mean, I think we're at 
plus 30 something states with marketplace laws now, maybe even more of the 45 that have a sales tax. And I thought that's asked and answered. You've got a Wayfair threshold. So why do you need this marketplace thing? So that we are even seeing that legislation continuing to pass has really surprised me. And who is a marketplace and who isn't? And, you know, is Shopify a marketplace? Is a credit card processor a marketplace? I mean, good golly, like what the heck is everybody doing to get the money, right? But I just think there's some surprising results that have happened post Wayfair. And certainly you're going to see whatever it is to, you know, deal with the coffers being emptied. So and pushing that to whoever they can to get multiple parties to have to deal with the consequence of sales tax collection at a minimum. I think it's going to get a couple of observations. One, I think it's going to remain to be difficult for quite a while. Um, I think it's going to get uglier in the next couple of years. Uh, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot of interesting issues. Um, you know, for those of us who love tax, this is going to be a fascinating time to be in it. Uh, I confess, you know, and Judy, I'm sure she would confess this too. A client comes in, they've got these horrible problems, and they don't share our enthusiasm for their problems. Uh, <laughs> I've I've experienced that, yes. Yeah, we, we, we find it's really, really fun and interesting and go, oh, this is really, oh, and then you have to stop yourself and say, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, well, we'll help you with this. <laughs> No, it's and the new businesses. I mean, you know, when you think of gaming and I'm going to do this and, you know, even businesses that have hotels and they're being more creative in what their offerings are outside of lodging. I mean, there are so many things that business does to get a market, to help their customer, to sell the thing or the service. And all of those have not been anticipated by the tax law. So it's a very fun puzzle to figure out. And so you have to put your thinking hat on and come up with a broad strategy in order to, you know, showcase what they can do. And then to my mind, I like to be in control of that tax direction and not be at the whim and fancy of an auditor. So I'm controlling the narrative. This is who we are. This is how we're complying. This is the piece of the action you get. That's all. You get that. So for for any of you who are out there listening to this, who are trying to decide what area of tax you might want to focus on, <laughs> you will you will be fully employed for the next thirty or forty years if you go into state and local tax. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a re- this is a recruiting podcast as well yes. as. <laughs> <laughs> Well, excellent. I want to thank both of you for joining me today on the Salt Ovation podcast. Uh, If you want to continue the conversation, you can reach Bruce Nelson at the Journal of State Taxation and Judy Warndren at saltovation.com. Join us for the next podcast where we'll be talking to business owners about managing state and local tax compliance. And you can find all our podcasts on saltovation.com where you can let us know the topics you'd like to hear in future episodes. I'm Alex Corjan. Until next time.